Good evening. On behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department. Welcome to the Central Library. We are excited to have you here for another edition of our Writers Lives series. Tonight is special because we are honored to present our special guest with one of our favorite people. He is a lifelong patron of the library, a supporter and overall cheerleader for us, the Honorable Congressman Elijah Cummings. As manager of the African American Department, I am personally eager to hear our guest speaker, award-winning author Will Haygood, because he will be talking about one of Maryland's history-making and notable African-American men, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Before we hear from him, I want to let everyone know of several more writers coming to the Pratt. This Monday, November 9th, Ira Berlin will be talking about his book, The Long Emancipation, The Demise of Slavery in the United States. And starting next week, we are kicking off a new speaker series with the University of Baltimore called Pratt Library at UB Live. The Central Library will be undergoing a four-year renovation and restoration project. We will be staying open for our patrons, but the second and third floors will be closed. So many of our events will have to be moved to other venues. UB President Kurt Smoke has graciously offered the facilities at UB for us. We have a full schedule of all these wonderful author events on our website and, of course, in the newest edition of Compass. But back to this evening. To introduce our special guest is a gentleman who needs no introduction himself. As I said earlier, he is a big supporter of the library. He has partnered on several events and programs with us, including the very successful college fair for Baltimore students every year. Please welcome the Congressman from the 7th Congressional District of Maryland, the Honorable Elijah Cummings. Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, Ms. Fisher, for your very kind words. I want to thank all of you for uh, taking up the time to be here this evening. And uh, you are in for a treat um, I was with Will about, uh, about what, six weeks ago, maybe, uh, at Howard University, where he made just an outstanding uh, presentation. But, uh, and I'm glad that he agreed to uh, come to my district here in Baltimore, the 7th Congressional District. And I also want to uh, thank Darlene Taylor. Darlene Taylor is, uh, used to be my chief of staff, and so she has been helping Will promote this book. And thank you, Darlene, for for all that you do. And to Enoch Pratt Library, um, a lot of people don't realize it, um, but Enoch Pratt is probably one of the very best libraries, not only in the United States, but in the world. Um, and the Pratt is headed by an awesome woman who uh, a, lot of, a lot of people in the Congress uh, ask me about almost every month, trying to figure out how they can get her to leave here to come to their libraries uh, because they want the very, very best, Carla Hayden. And I, in her absence, I, I, I want to make sure that you all pass on, with, my dear, pass on the word, and make sure you tell her what I said. Um, it's nothing like a compliment that never gets to the person complimented. But she had, and the staff here at Pratt, and, you know, just been so wonderful, and I thank you. You know, um, we also have with us a, a, a fellow who wrote a book about uh, Thurgood Marshall. It's entitled Young Thurgood, uh, The Making of a Supreme Court Justice. And that's Larry Gibson. And Larry, um, this is very kind of Larry to be here. Um, as, a, as a footnote, as a, just a real quick footnote, uh, I am 64 years old, and Larry has been my mentor since I was 16. So um, he has really traveled my life uh, and been a part of every major decision I've made. And I, I thank you, Larry, for um, giving so much of yourself to help me to get where I've gotten to. But I thank you more for, than that for being an example 
of excellence and um, just a phenomenal lawyer and, and teacher. Tonight, we are here with a man who I, I have a lot of respect for. Um, you know, Will Haggard uh, wrote this book, Showdown, and it, it is a, it's, it's an excellent book. And when you hear him talk about it, um, he really does bring it to life. And he almost takes you uh, by the hand and as if you are walking with Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, every time I think about Thurgood Marshall, I, I realize that Thurgood Marshall has had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, I was telling Will that my family um, was in Manning, well, they were former slaves in Manning, South Carolina, then in Clarendon County. And they were trying to get, uh, years ago, the parents simply wanted to have their children to have a school bus to get to school, uh, uh, basically a shack, which, which was about seven or eight miles away. And they filed suit in a, a case called Briggs versus Elliott. And um, I have relatives that were involved in that case. And come to find out, uh, the white kids, if you live uh, a short distance, you got a bus ride. And and so they sued, and that case, Briggs versus Elliott, became a part of Brown versus Board. And, uh, of course, you know that Thurgood Marshall played a significant role there. And then with regard to the University of Maryland, a law school, uh, opening the doors for people like me to come along years later to be uh, not only to attend University of Maryland Law School, to be, but to be also a graduate. And I was thinking, Will, tonight, uh, as I passed the University of Maryland Law School, where Larry Gibson teaches, by the way, um, I could not help, Will, but think about what my father said. Uh, he was a former sharecropper from, you know, Manning. And I'll never forget, he said, where are you going to law school, boy? I said, uh, you know, I named all these schools that I'd, I'd uh, uh, been accepted to. And he says, uh, well, and I had enlisted Maryland. He said, now, what about that school downtown? They got law school, don't they? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, that's where I want you to go. I said, well, Daddy, what do you know about law schools? He said, I paid for it. <laughs> and he meant that. He had paid his taxes year after year after year. And he wanted his son to benefit from what he paid for and so, Will, again, and, and, and I, I say this to both you and Larry, I really appreciate you all bringing to life people who went before us. It is so important. It, it really is. Um, because so often um, history is written and we are not included. But, but when you create masterpieces like you, you pr produce, um, you have now created something that people will be reading a hundred years from now, which is so very, very important. I look at our youth today, and a lot of them don't know what we've been through to get to where we are. And again, when I look out at, at, at this audience, I feel real, real good to see the diversity that is sitting here. And this diversity, ladies and gentlemen, is not our problem. It is our promise. And so with that, I'm, I, I'm just so anxious. Again, I, I heard him before, like I said, but I want to hear him again. And, Will, you can tell him about all the awards you've gotten on the book and everything. I mean, he's, doing, I mean, he's, he's really, I, I guess I should read a little bit about you. Um, uh, Will Haygood is currently teaching at uh, Miami University of Ohio. Uh, for nearly three decades, he was a journalist serving as a national and foreign correspondent at the Boston Globe, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And then at the Washington Post, where he wrote the story, A Butler Well Served by This Election, which became the basis for the award-winning motion picture, The Butler, directed by Lee Daniels. And if you haven't seen it, don't die before you see it. For, for, um, for his work on Showdown, Haywood was awarded a John uh, uh, Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. And we should all be grateful for his work.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to our library and to our district and to our city a truly great writer, Mr. Will Hager. very touching to be here in Thurgood Marshall's hometown. I can tell you that. I thank you, Congressman, Congressman Cummings. Many people in my hometown back in Columbus have been watching you on the, uh, on the hearings, on the Benghazi hearings. And I told my nephew, who's 24, that you were going to be introducing me tonight. And he said, wow, he's the hero of the Benghazi hearings. Gee whiz. And so, yes, you are. You are the, many of us think you are the soul of America at this very important juncture in this country's history. Um, it means a lot that you have uh, embraced this book. I know it has a family connection, you and your father. And so, I can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are. I sort of can't believe that you're here, but I'm happy, <laughs> very happy. Larry Gibson, thank you for writing your wonderful book on Thurgood Marshall's youth. I read that book, and it greatly informed me. Um, I want to thank the library uh, as well. It's a beautiful library, and I'm touched to be here. Thank you, Trudy. Thank you, Darlene. Thank you, Talmyra Hill, who is a Baltimore native and, uh, and took me to a wonderful dinner earlier today and showed me some parts of the city. I ran into somebody when I was at the train station in Washington, D.C., and they recognized me from, from the movie, you know, from having written a story, someone who I hadn't seen in about three years. And, they asked me <clears throat> if much has changed in my life since the movie has come out a couple years ago. The movie made a lot of money and it went all around the world and not a lot has changed, but I am very curious that <clears throat> I've been contacted by third and fourth cousins who I never knew I had. And I got some nice shout outs from both of the ladies who turned me down for the high school prom. <laughs> One of them said, now, Will, now you, you aren't holding a grudge, are you? <laughs> so I said, now, why would I hold a grudge about what happened on May 22nd? <laughs> At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> when I ask you to go to the prom with me outside of Miss Johnston's homeroom class, <laughs> why in the world would I do such a thing? Um, so, <laughs> we're in a good place now, me and those, me and those two ladies. But I was curious. I did ask, well, how come you didn't go to prom with me, Janet? She said, because you didn't have a car. I said, baby, I still don't, but I travel now with the American Express Gold Card. <laughs> don't need a car when you got one of those. Thurgood Marshall. Uh, I, you know, is a very intimidating figure to write about. I, um, I have been asked, why Thurgood Marshall? And uh, I think because of Elvira Haygood, born in Selma, Alabama. Her father was a sharecropper. She was rushed to the Columbus, Ohio hospital the Ohio State University Hospital, in 1954. She was pregnant. She gave birth early 
to two children. In 1954, that's the year of Thurgood, she had two children that year on the cusp of freedom that year. When I was on the movie set, not to name drop, but Oprah Winfrey and me and Forrest Whitaker, all born in that time period, we were talking about our parents and what that must have meant for them to have children born in that year. My mother gave birth in 1954 to two children, twins, a boy and a girl. I'm the boy. And I always wanted to pay homage to my mother for carrying two children during that tough, tough year in American history. The Thurgood Marshall made possible. Toward the, toward the end of his life, Thurgood Marshall got a phone call I'm toward the end of this person's life who called him. It was President Lyndon Johnson, and he was out of the White House. He was kind of sad, you know, because his legacy had been tarnished Vietnam. And he was at his ranch in Texas, and he had called Thurgood Marshall and reached him on the phone, you know, and he had one of those great deep southern voices. He said, Thurgood! I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book about the hell you caused me to get you onto the Supreme Court. Nobody knows this story, but I'm going to write about it. And Thurgood Marshall said, well, Mr. President, anything I can do to help you, I certainly will. And then President Johnson said, yes, because it was hell. It was hell to get you onto that court. President Johnson died a short while later. I was telling my niece that story, and she said, well, Uncle Will, so you have written the book that the president wanted to write. And I said to my niece, I said, hey, that's a good line. I think I'm going to use it on my book tour. (laughs) He was born in this city, very humble, humble parents, They dreamed for him. He went to Lincoln University. He fell in love in high school, and that love affair carried on through Lincoln University, carried on to Howard University Law School. It was a love affair bigger than than Cupid's longest arrow. He imagined he would be haunted by that love affair all of his life. It was so deep and so righteous and so soulful. Thurgood Marshall fell in love with the U.S. Constitution. It's just six pages. He had a miniature copy of it made and carried it around in his vest pocket. His mother had dreamed that maybe he would go to the University of Maryland Law School, but they would not accept people with his skin color, and he knew it. Howard University, he graduated at the top of his law school class, went south with another legendary lawyer by the name of Charles Hamilton Houston. They saw how segregated school systems were awful on the psyche of black children. They came up with this plan to attack legal segregation through the school system. Thurgood Marshall came home to Baltimore, worked for a couple years, and then he, he got the call from the NAACP and went to work for them. He dreamed of the legal defense fund. They celebrate this year their 75th anniversary. One of the highlights of my life is last week, the legal defense fund arm of the NAACP invited me up 
to sign books at Thurgood Marshall's desk. And I did in New York City. 45 books I signed at his desk. Then they took me to another room and said, our gala is tomorrow, is next week. This was last week, and our gala was actually last night. I couldn't make it because I had a reading in Washington, D.C. And they asked me if I would sign, autograph a book for everybody at the gala. As I'm walking down the hall, I said, oh, of course. Then I turn and look in the building. It's 750 books. (laughs) With this hand. They asked me to sign Happy Anniversary, LDF, Will Haygood, and the date. By the time I got to 105 books, I said, hey, I've got to do some editing now. It's just got to be to LDF, Will Haygood. By the time I got to 300 books, I said, hey, have to do a little more editing. It's just going to be Will Haygood. <laughs> then I got to 550 books, and I said, look, just a W, Haygood, is going to have to work. But they all got their books last night, and people were sending me pictures. They're good. NAACP, brave as hell, death threats. He goes into Texas, summoned there by people in Houston. He couldn't vote in the all-white Democratic primary, so they need Thurgood Marshall. He goes, takes the court to the Supreme Court, takes the case to the Supreme Court, and wins. Smith v. Allwright. There was a young politician there by the name of Lyndon Johnson. He starts to rise, runs for Senate becomes the Senate leader, then the vice president, then the president. Each victory was larger and larger, aided by those voters who had been freed by Thurgood Marshall. You can argue, you can say, no Thurgood Marshall, no Lyndon Johnson. That's the arc of history. Smith v. R. Wright, Shelley V. Kramer, Vic Housing case out of St. Louis. Sweat V. Painter, he integrated the University of Texas Law School. His mother had her poetic justice. Her son couldn't get into the University of Maryland. But the good marshal tracked down somebody by the name of Donald Murray, told him to apply. Donald Murray said, well, they aren't going to accept me because I'm black. Thurgood Marshall said, leave that up to me. He filed suit, and they had to let him in. That's the arc of history. His titanic case. Thin, black lady, 24 years old, in Columbus, Ohio, in the hospital. 1954 gives birth to two kids. History, how it turns, the arc of it, it's just amazing. (coughs) President Lyndon Johnson said the first nail is going to be the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The second nail is going to be the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The third nail in the coffin of white supremacy is going to be naming a gifted African-American to the United States Supreme Court. It was fascinating In the spring of 1967, there was no opening. 
There was no opening on the U.S. Supreme Court. So how do you make that happen? Lyndon Johnson was a master politician. He knew Tom Clark, who was an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He summons Tom Clark to his office and says, Tom, your only son, I've known him most of his life. As you know, he's working for me now. But I want to elevate him and give him a great job. I want to name your boy Attorney General. But I can't do it because of you. Tom Clark said, well, what do you mean, Mr. President? Well, Tom, if I name Ramsey my attorney general, with you sitting on the high court, people are going to accuse me of nepotism. And I can't have that. So that's a shame, Tom. I know that's your only boy. I know how much you love him, how much you would love to see him working for his president in the attorney general spot. Tom Clark is stricken. He says, oh, my God. Well, Mr. President, is there anything that I can do? And the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, says, well, I'm not telling you what to do, but. I do know if you were not on the court, then nobody could accuse me of nepotism. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you how I can see that the situation would be much better. And your only son, who you dearly love, might have an opportunity to become the Attorney General of the United States of America. Tom Clark His daughter, who I interviewed, told me this story, went home, hugged his wife and said, sweetie, I'm stepping down from the Supreme Court. It's a lifetime appointment. Then Lyndon Johnson summoned Thurgood Marshall to the White House. It was a stealth, stealth announcement, unlike today when there are leaks uh, three months ahead of time. Everybody knows who's going to be nominated. You know, it's all kind of feature stories about the person where they grew up. No, this was, this was almost done in the middle of the night so as not to get the Southerners on the Senate Judiciary Committee riled up. Those senators, there were four of them and they were powerful. James Eastland of Mississippi, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, Sam Irvin of North Carolina, and John... McClellan of Arkansas. They were barons. They had large staffs, large offices. And in their mind, public enemy number one was Thurgood Marshall because he had changed the landscape of their American South. James Eastland's son, who I interviewed, told me very honestly, he said, What was amazing is that when I was a kid and if you did something bad, your mother or father in my neighborhood would say to you, Thurgood Marshall's going to come and get you. (laughs) (laughs) He was a boogeyman. I mean, just because of what he had in his vest pocket, the U.S. Constitution. Two of those men on the Judiciary Committee had fathers who had murdered men. I did not know that before I started doing this book. So two of the ten senators, Senator Strom Thurmond's daddy had murdered a man, and Senator James Eastland's daddy had murdered a black man and black woman without trial. So I'm not linking those senators to those murders, but I'm saying that's the type of household that they grew up in, where violence had been meted out for no reason. And now in 1967, these men are staring across at Thurgood Marshall, saying, if it's the last thing we do, 
We lost the 64 Civil Rights Act and we lost the Voting Rights Act, but we aren't going to lose this. And they sent the best and the brightest in the U.S. Senate. Sam Irvin, Harvard graduate, known as the foremost U.S. constitutional scholar in the Senate. He had 30,000 books, Sam Irvin. He was a bibliophile. He would travel and he would come back home, books up under his arm. His wife, Margaret, would say, oh, my God, Sam, you got more books. I ain't got no place to put the books. Scholar, learned man. But in none of those 30,000 books could Sam Irvin find equality for the black man. Letters were written into the U.S. Senate that summer because the young Turks on the committee, Senator Birch Bayh, Senator Joseph Tidings of Maryland, Senator Ted Kennedy had encouraged their constituents, if you want Thurgood Marshall to make it, write your senators. So they did. John McClellan, Before he died, he said that his archives could not be opened for 50 years until after his death, 50 years. I started work on this book 50 years and two weeks after John McClellan died. I hopped on a plane and went to Arkansas and spent a week in his archives. I came across this letter. Dear Senator McClellan, please, sir, no nigger on the Supreme Court bench. Sincerely yours, the Harshaw family. There was another letter that I came across from Texarkana, Arkansas, written to Senator McClellan. came across this letter on the last day at the library. The archives were so newly opened that the letter had not been indexed yet. I just saw a box, it had M on it. It could have been John McClellan or it could have been something else. Just so happens when I opened the box, I saw a folder that said Thurgood Marshall. This letter was at the bottom of that folder written to the Arkansas senator from one of his constituents. Dear Senator McClellan, I am a resident of Arkansas and a law-abiding citizen who believes strongly in God, the United States Constitution, and justice for all. Recently, I read an article concerning remarks made by you and another senator about Thurgood Marshall and his efforts to become an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Sir, I am a Negro in American. I want you to know how I feel about Mr. Marshall's nomination. I'm sure that I can speak for all the Negroes in Arkansas. Mr. Marshall is just as qualified as any likely candidate that you know. It has been made quite clear which side you are on. We all know why you and the other Southern senators don't want him to be on the Supreme Court, and it's not because of the Constitution. You don't want him because he's black, and that is the only reason. Stop covering up behind some excuse. Chances are that the nomination will be turned down. But we hope and pray that you will open up your heart and let all the hatred out and let Mr. Marshall's record speak for itself. Color doesn't make the person senator. It is character that makes the man. If he doesn't get the nomination, there will be others who will seek after the same opportunity. There will be hundreds, Senator, and you can't fight them all. Somebody We'll get it. One of these days, the president of the United States will be 
a Negro. Sincerely yours, Barbara Ross. In 1967, that's the greatness of the country too, faith, a muscular faith. That's the beauty of the country. I'm sad to say Mrs. Ross did not get a reply, not even a form letter. It says no answer. She didn't even receive the dignity of a form letter. I told my sister that story and she said, well, when you're on your book tour, you're down in Texas or Arkansas. You got to get over to Texarkana and find her heirs. Somebody and her family give her a copy of the book. I said to my sister Diane, I said, Diane, that's a great idea and I'm going to do it. So three months ago, before the book came out, I was thinking about this letter a lot and I called the city clerk in Texarkana, Arkansas. I said, hello, my name is Will Haygood. I've just spent five years working on a book about Thurgood Marshall and his confirmation hearings and I have a letter that I'm going to quote that has been quoted in the book, written by somebody who used to live in your town, Barbara Ross. Do you know anybody who might know her family? And the city clerk said, no, I don't, but let me have your number, and I'll see if I can find somebody for you or somebody who would know about the family. About nine days later, I come home in Washington, D.C., and I still have a landline, so I'm old school. And I see it blinking, and I say, oh, I got some messages. Oh, yippee. <laughs> so I press it, and it says, you have six messages or whatever. And one of the messages was from the city clerk. Hello, Mr. Haygood, I have a number. Please call this number. And that's all she said. So I dialed the number. And a voice came on the line, sort of hollow, fragile. Hello. I said, hello. My name is Will Haygood. I'm a writer. Just finished a book about Thurgood Marshall in his confirmation hearings. I'm looking for a Barbara Ross's family. The city clerk told me to call this number. And the voice said, well, my name is Barbara Ross. And I said, oh, well, oh, wow, huh. Would you be her daughter? Her granddaughter? Were you named after Mrs. Ross? Because I have this letter here that was written on July 19, 1967, the second day of the third group Marshall hearings. And she said, this voice said, my daddy had bought me a manual typewriter that previous Christmas and I was listening to the hearings. I was 18 years old, home for the summer and I got so upset at the way they were attacking their good marshal and I took my manual typewriter out on the back porch and I wrote a letter to Senator McClellan he never answered me, though. How did you get your hands on that letter? And I'm so bewildered. Can this be her? And I had the letter in my hand as I'm sitting on my couch. And I noticed I just looked silently at the street address, 2103 Delaware Street. So I said, well, 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 wait a minute. Now, Miss Ross, can you tell me? Where were you living at in the summer of 1967? She said, well, of course, I was living with Mama and Daddy at 2103 Delaware Street. And I was stunned. I, I, I said, I said, Mrs. Ross, first, let me apologize that you did not get a letter. Because you deserved a letter. I said, but 
History has a way of working out. I said, your letter is now in my book. And I'm very happy to tell you that. And she asked me to read the letter to her again over the phone, and I did. And it was a very touching moment for me. She told me, she said, my daughter just lost her job last week, and this is some lovely news. I can hardly believe it that I'm going to be in a book. And we talked some more about 30 minutes. And before I hung up, she said, now tell me what it was really like working with Oprah Winfrey on that movie. (laughs) So I did. Here is the um, last scene. Um... This is a scene, the vote. Marshall made it out of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, and then his nomination goes to the full floor of the vote, for the vote, where it's set in limbo for 31 days. It was shameful. He had taken 32 cases before the Supreme Court and won 29. He had no peer. And yet there were some people in the Senate who said he doesn't know the Constitution. He shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. He changed America because he loved America. This is that scene. White House aides had been tabulating numbers in the days leading up to the vote. While a nominee requires 50 votes to pass, the important number for the White House was 60 votes, the number needed to avoid a filibuster. Told in the days leading up to the vote, they indeed had 50 votes, enough for confirmation. Lyndon Johnson was focused on the 60 votes they needed to stop a filibuster. If the Southerners managed to stop the White House short of 60 votes, They could filibuster the nomination into oblivion, and LBJ knew it. After six hours, it was finally agreed that there would be no more delays. The time had come to vote. Senator Mansfield opened the voting, and soon there were the echoes throughout the chamber. Aiken, yay! Anderson, yay! Bird, nay. Eastland, nay. Hill, nay. Sparkman, nay. Church, yay. Lousy, yay. Symington, yay. Thurman, nay. Some of the votes were uttered in even monotones while others soared high in volume, causing necks to crane throughout the galleries. Kennedy, yay! Long, nay! When it was all over, Lyndon B. Johnson had convinced 20 Southern senators to not vote. LBJ and his White House aides had prevailed to make the vote show 69-11. Thurgood Marshall was going to the United States Supreme Court. Phil Hart of Michigan, who floor managed the vote, nearly wept. A huge smile crossed his face. All the senators who had fought for Marshall began reaching out to one another to shake hands. They had made history, and they realized it. Senator Mansfield could not hold back his emotions. He glanced around the Senate from side to side. 
They all set their eyes upon him. Then he spoke in a voice clear and strong. Mr. President, the confirmation of the nomination of Thurgood Marshall as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court is also a confirmation of the vitality of the democratic system. It is a tribute to the good sense of President Johnson who made the nomination and to the judgment of the Senate, which has now approved it. The confirmation means that a man who loves the law and who has a firm respect and high faith in it moves to the top of his profession by entering the highest judicial body in the United States. Thurgood Marshall's rise to the Supreme Court reaffirms the American ideal that what counts is what you are and not who you are or whom your antecedents may have been. This is a shining hour, Mr. President, for Mr. Marshall, for you, for the Senate, and for the United States of America. We have come a long, long way toward equal access to the Constitution's promise. I join my colleagues in the Senate in extending sincere congratulations to Mr. Justice Marshall on this most auspicious day in his life. A short while later, word reached the newest member of the U.S. Supreme Court that he would have to report to be measured for his judicial robes. This last scene is going to wrap up. This is a scene I worked on after I visited Thurgood Marshall's gravesite. On his editorial page on March 6, 2011, the New York Times penned an editorial simply titled Thurgood Marshall. It was unusual on that page to have a life revisited after the passage of so much time. It was a lovely and tender tribute about the ongoing artistic homage being paid to Marshall's life. On the Supreme Court today, the editorial stated, there is no justice who seems placed there to speak for the powerless by such a sweeping tide of history. There is no one whose life translates so magisterially into art. All of the attention gained Marshall new admirers. Tourists would troop out to Arlington National Cemetery to visit his gravesite. The cemetery sat on land once owned by a prominent Confederate family. After the Civil War and the South's defeat, the land would be sold to the federal government. Old and bent in jubilee singing blacks. Fresh from the slave plantations, would trudge into Washington without places to stay, hoping their government would help them. Many who were penniless were reduced to foraging for food. They were often given housing on the site of the cemetery itself, a part of which was called Freedman's Village. These were the very people whom Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had appealed to for help during the massive manhunt to bring President Lincoln's assassin to justice. And when the final gust of breath had left the former plantation residents, they would be placed in spare wooden coffins and lowered into the earth on the same grounds where Thurgood Marshall, who had worked to free their descendants would be laid to rest years later, allowing the wind to blow eternally over their gathered souls. Thank you very much. We have time for a few questions I hear, right? Yes. Okay. 
I know there's probably a long-winded answer to this, a long answer to this question, but can you talk a little bit about the nature of the hearings themselves and what were the, what were the big issues? I, mean, I imagine it was very different back then than it is today with what goes on. I was just curious, maybe just a, a little summary of, of kind of the, the major points of the contention that went on in the hearings themselves to confirm it. Yeah, Thank you. sure. Um, one of the big things that, um, that they tried to do to Thurgood Marshall is taint him as being a uh, communist sympathizer. And so if he was ever seen with a friend uh, who was sympathetic to communism, then they would bring that up. Um, uh, Strom Thurmond asked Thurgood Marshall about the celebrated case that happened in 1967, Loving v. Virginia, about the black woman and her husband, who was white, uh, in the state of Virginia. They were sleeping together in the same bed, as husband and wives are wont to do. And they were arrested, and the case went to the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall's first wife, who was African-American, had passed away, and he married a second time, and she was of Asian descent. And Strom Thurmond, of all people, asked Marshall about loving. So he brought race and sex into the hearing room. The same Strom Thurmond who had statutorily raped his black maid who was underage and and she had father uh, she had mothered a child. She had given birth to Strom Thurmond's daughter. If Thurmond had had a heady aide, the aide might have leaned over and said, "Senator, I don't think you want to go there." <laughs> but he didn't, and that was awful to do that. And Marshall was also asked to name the signers of the 1837 Slave Codes, which was equivalent to being asked, as blacks had been asked, how many jelly beans are in that jar. And so that's what was going on to this esteemed lawyer who had graduated number one in his class and who had won more than 90% of his cases before the Supreme Court. And also, there were no witnesses allowed like there are today. I often thought, and if this ever becomes a movie, you know, and screenwriters can do things, if you had one sharecropper on a cane walking into the hearing room to testify in the say, that man gave me the right to vote. Now, that's me putting my screenwriter's hat on, but, I mean, that would be a wigget because it's true. It's true. It's true. So that was the tenor of the hearings. They were tough. And before Thurgood Marshall, no hearing had ever lasted more than four hours. It was simply a rubber stamp. Hey, Welcome to the Supreme Court. But with Thurgood Marshall, it went on five days, stretched over 12 days. And then the nomination set in limbo. So, and that wasn't no coincidence. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes. What did President Johnson have to give or give up to get those 20 Southern senators not to, uh, not to vote? Mm-hmm. He was very, very masterful. I've seen some of, the, some of the transcripts of some of the phone calls, and they went like this. Now, Senator McClellan, now, I know you know how to cut throats, and I'm asking you not to cut my throat on this one. That's all I'm asking you. Don't cut my throat on this one. And the threat was real big. And there was another phone call that went like this. Senator, I understand that 
you're supposed to be getting a highway in your community next year. And word has it that the town fathers want to name that highway after you. I hope that happens. <laughs> I really would like to see that happen. But I got to tell you something. It might not happen. I control the money up here. I got a man who I want on the Supreme Court. And so that was the tenor of those conversations. That's why they called him master of the Senate, LBJ. Yes. Uh, yes. Did you know much about Thurgood Marshall's uh, parents, what type of people they were? Yes, uh, very humble. Uh, his mother went to Coppin State. Uh, she was a school teacher. His father was a waiter, worked on the railroads, uh, uh, stalwart, stalwart people, um, had two sons, Aubrey and Thurgood, uh, really dreamed uh, high dreams for their sons. One became a doctor and one became a lawyer. Uh, uh, and they must have been extremely tickled at the success of Thurgood. Uh, but good, solid, stable family and Thurgood sat at the dinner table with his parents every night. Larry Gibson, he tells that story very beautifully in his book. Uh, but really good, solid people, a good family. And his father was always there every day. I think there was a question here. Was there a question over here? Well, yes. I have <laughs> you know, you make a very interesting point when you talk about um, uh, a hearing today, uh, comments today, and um, kind of actions by the president or um, um, in, a, in a congressional hearing and just um, the media coverage that would come with it. So I was just wondering if you could share a little bit for those 20 – some senators who stayed home, was there coverage back home? Uh, yes. Uh, super question. Uh, senators, of course, went to the Senate to vote. So to not vote on something as historic as this, you know, m meant a whole lot. I mean, and they had to back it up at home by simply saying I wasn't feeling good that day. I just couldn't make it in. I was flat on my back. I had a headache or whatever. And so that's how they justified it. But there were, I mean, and it's in the newspapers. It just said uh, no vote. 20, 20, 20, 20. Now the vote 69, 11 sounds large, but the Southerners we're only nine votes from having enough clout to have a filibuster. In Thurgood Marshall, no lawyer would have taken constantly being hammered on the floor of the U.S. Senate. I mean, if somebody hammered me for like nine days, I mean, goodness gracious, there's no telling how my psyche would just fall apart. Oh, I'm that bad. Oh, my God. I thought I was a pretty good writer. Golly. I mean, and Lyndon Johnson wasn't going to let that happen to him anyway. Matter of fact, Lyndon Johnson was so nervous by the second day because this was unheard of, the hearings going over one day. Lyndon Johnson was so nervous that he summoned William Coleman, another African-American attorney from Philadelphia, brilliant, Harvard University Law School clerk for Felix Frankfurter, right? I think it was Frankfurter, right? Um, brilliant. And Linda Johnson told him, hey, if my man Thurgood doesn't get it, then I want you to be my alternate. He didn't want to do it. He said, well, Mr. President, I love Thurgood Marshall. I worked with him on the Brown v. Board of Education case. But I'll go around to other senators and try to persuade them to at least give Marshall a fair chance. 
Yes. What was the attitude of the other justices on the court to having a black justice? You know, they were all very cordial. Uh, there was one white secretary who didn't want to work for Thurgood Marshall. Uh, but when Marshall got on the court, it started to, to uh, shift, shift to the right. There is no doubt about it. And he wasn't happy about that. Uh, but Marshall had a great sense of humor, a great sense of wit. <clears throat> he would get on the elevator sometimes and tourists would come and they would see him, tall black man, look stately, and they would turn to him and say, fourth floor, please. And Marshall would just kind of chuckle, oh, okay, push forward. In the afternoon, they walk into the court and see him. It's one of the Supreme Court justices, you know. He got a kick out of that. Yes? If he were living today, besides being old, um, what, what would he say about the current state of the United States? I, I think he'd be... Um, I think he'd be excited about the potential in the country that, that there is a lot of greatness here, there's a lot of muscle here, there's a lot of courage here. Uh, we witnessed that from this man right here at the hearings. There's no doubt about it. But he would also be, a part of him would be dismayed uh, with the Trayvon Martins of the nation, kids whose lives are cut out from under him for no reason. Um, I think uh, Marshall cared about... Uh, he cared about poor people. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he would get angry when uh, there's a great case, and I write about it in the book, where a man lost his appeal to the federal courts because he didn't have the $25 filing fee to file it in time. So it was filed again to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court chose to hear it, but they did not rule in his favor. And Marshall's uh, dissent was stinging. He said, it's obvious that my brethren do not realize that some people cannot put their hands on $25 on a certain day. They have taken... Uh, their life histories and transferred it on to this this poor gentleman who could not get to the courthouse in time because he had to get on the bus with his mentally impaired child and make sure that that child got to school safely thus by the time he got to the court it was too late and um, that's how Marshall stood and that's that's who he spoke for, the voiceless. So I think he would be very happy that we showed in 2008 that we could overcome our stereotypes and fear of race. And we have a first family who has represented this nation extraordinarily well during the past eight years. He would be very proud of that. As to the justice who took his place, I, I, I don't, yeah, I just don't think words, I think words might fail him. And I don't say that <clears throat> to pour, uh, uh, to pour any sort of dislike 
upon Mr. Thomas. It's just that there's no intellectual gravitas there. If he were black or white, it hurts more that he, he, he was expected to have uh, some heart. And I think that New York Times editorial uh, said it best. There is no justice who speaks as Marshall did for those who don't have a voice. We have time for one more question. Well, then that's a perfect note to end on. I want to I wanna, I thank you, Congressman, for being here so much. Thank, thank all of you, all of you from the library. Trudy, thank you. Darlene, thank you. Larry, thank you very much. It's just been an honor to be here. And I hope I've, I hope I've made those of you who love Thurgood Marshall as much as I do, I hope I've added some measure of joy to your life with this book. Thank you so much. Thank you.